just beautiful picture of love, and, and we're celebrating that this week, this, this last week of Advent. Um, we just sang these songs of, you know, this peaceful manger scene and, and uh, you know, some really uh, beloved Christmas carols. Uh, and then we read Job 3. And even in, with Karen's sweet southern voice, it is just a gut-wrenching chapter. It really contrasts with uh, the rest of this, this service today. And so uh, as, we, uh, as, as we go into this sermon together, uh, just know that this is a tough chapter uh, to hear. I can tell you that every uh, sermon uh, of this series so far that I've preached, and praise God that there have been so many others who have helped, it has been uh, actually a struggle to get up to the pulpit um, and, uh, and, and uh, by God's strength only. But we've been in this series now for about six weeks uh, in the book of Job, and uh, you've heard an overview of the book, how, it's, how I believe this, this book of the Bible speaks of God's sovereignty in our suffering. Uh, you, you heard about how God uses that, in that sovereignty, chooses Job, a, a righteous man, a, a person who he calls blameless and upright, who we know is, is the greatest among the people in the, in the East, and he chooses him specifically uh, for suffering, that the suffering of the righteous person uh, brings or proves God's sovereignty and it, and it proves the sufferer's integrity. We looked at the what suffering must look like through Job's eyes. And Pastor Michael brought us through that, and, and he called it the crowning jewel of Job's words. When in the midst of this suffering, uh, as he mourns, he, he then gets up and worships, and he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. We got to see how uh, Satan uh, attacks Job, and, and even uh, attacks Job's wife uh, with despair. Then Pastor Don uh, a couple weeks ago, spoke on how, uh, how godly comfort uh, begins with a godly heart. And he used the three friends of Job who came to give comfort uh, and, and show sympathy to his, their friend Job. And then last week, Pastor Nick Clark from Faith Community Bible Church, a man who was called to bring, to just show comfort and sympathy to those who are suffering, uh, preached on Psalm 77 and, and talked ab- about uh, uh, the, the practice of, of biblical lament. And he said that, uh, that all humans suffer, but only followers of Christ are, are blessed with the opportunity to lament. And throughout all of this, we've seen Job giving us some very good examples of how a person can suffer without losing hope, uh, uh, how he can give glory and thanks to God, both for what he has given and for what he has taken away, that he can give glory to the God who in Isaiah 45, 7 says that he he forms light and creates darkness. He makes well-being and creates calamity. And then we get to chapter 3, and the mood changes significantly. You've heard it read today, perhaps this week. You've You've seen some of the challenges. I hope that many of you have looked at the Prepare for Sunday Gathered that we send out every Wednesday to help you prepare uh, for the service uh, the following Sunday. And if you did, you can see that this is a very hard chapter. Um, 
As I was preparing this sermon a couple weeks ago, uh, I got into the, my, the first commentary I read on chapter 3 started like this. It's by a guy uh, named Alden. And uh, here are the encouraging words he had to have for pastors preparing sermons on, on uh, chapter 3. The third chapter of Job must be one of the most depressing chapters in the Bible. While some might be as depressed as Job was and may use these verses to give vent to their feelings, few sermons are made from this chapter. Few verses are claimed as promises and few are remembered for the warmth of their sentiment. It is the lowest of several low points in the book and seems to counter the high faith of 1.21 and chapter 2, verse 10. Few sermons are made from this chapter Indeed, as I completed my outline later, I started to look for some sermons from trusted pastors to see if what the conclusions I was coming to were off base. Um, and so I looked and found that the commentary was correct. Very, very few sermons are made on chapter 3, especially as of late. Uh, two sermons by one of my favorite pastors looked promising. One even said it was uh, in, in, uh, in, in chapter 3. Uh, both of those sermons, uh, separated by about 10 years, uh, had three sentences on the chapter. I got excited. I found a, a sermon from a well-respected church. Um, one of the pastors there had preached specifically on Job 3, an hour-long sermon. Martha and I listened to it um, together. One minute on chapter 3, and then the rest of the time, how chapter 3 relates to the other more redemptive parts of, of, of the book. Uh, the only in-depth uh, sermon I was able to find was not from the past few years, not from the past few decades. It was 140 years ago when Charles Spurgeon wrote on uh, chapter 3, verse 23. There is a reason for this. Uh, Alden, the guy who wrote the commentary I read from earlier, was overly generous in his words. There are, <laughs> he wrote, few verses that are claimed as promises. Few are remembered for the warmth of their sentiment. There are none that, that most people would claim as promises or see as warmth of sentiment. You are not going to find anything from Job chapter 3 on a refrigerator magnet. You know, you're probably not going to have it on your bumper sticker. After two chapters of seeing Satan shamed and God glorified, a good, good triumphing over evil, we come to a chapter that seems to be devoid of hope. It is true despair. So, the good thing is, we get to make history today. We get to preach on chapter 3. And before you leave, <laughs> uh, head out the door, let me tell you that as gloomy as this passage is, I believe that it shows hope. I think it is a turning point for Job. It's where he starts to see a sliver of true hope, hope that proves that despair, like its father the devil, is a liar. And that's the sermon in a nutshell today, that, that despair is a liar. Uh, despair is a liar because it rejects God's plans, it rejects God's person, and it misses God's providence. If we look back again to last week's sermon on Psalm 77, Nick described uh, lament as coming to the table and staying at the table with God, right? talking with Him, engaging with Him through the process of suffering. 
That psalm was what we might call a complete lament, even though it ends sort of in the middle of the story and it's unsatisfying in the way it ends, but it's a complete lament. It has uh, Asaph crying out to God. It has him uh, asking of God, trusting in God, and even praising God. It blends very well into the season of Advent as we wait expectantly, as we live faithfully in the present moment and circumstances with watchful confidence that God will yet be faithful. And Job 3 is different. It is a lament, but it is one that is incomplete, and it is unsatisfying. He cries out in despair. He curses the day of his birth, and he asks questions which can't be answered. He longs for death. And what's missing from the lament is this expression of trust in and praise of God. Chapter 3, if you, it's on page 418 of your Red Pew Bibles, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture, please feel free to bring one of these uh, home with you as our gift. But uh, chapter 3 starts with the words, after this, and it points us back to chapter 2. Uh, Job's friends, again, have come to show him sympathy and, and to comfort him. They have mourned with him. They have sat in silence with, uh, in the ashes with him for seven days and seven nights. For they saw that his suffering was very great. And while I think their ministry was indeed comforting to Job, he has still continued to suffer through those seven days and seven nights. And after that time, it is Job who breaks the silence. And so he cries out in, in verse 1 again. He opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. And for the first time in this book, God's servant whom God has proclaimed earlier as righteous, as blameless and upright. He's met suffering with worship. He's spoken truth in the face of lies. This servant of God falls into despair. And, in de and as he believes despair's lies, he falls into sin. Let me be clear. Job does not sin by crying out to God. He doesn't sin by asking questions of God. As we saw in the last two weeks, God, or Scripture, through, uh, through Scripture, God teaches us that crying out to Him is welcome. It, it's something that, that is modeled by the Old Testament saints. It's something He welcomes, and Job's friends themselves raise their voices. They mourn with, with Job, crying out to God. Later, Jesus Himself would say, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? So while Job does not sin because he cries out, he does sin in how he cries out. His words reveal the completely understandable uh, situation with, with his heart, the weakness of his heart, the sinfulness of his heart in the face of unimaginable suffering. He starts by cursing. And cursing is a word we need to, we need to define. Right? We, we've heard of it before in Job, how Job sacrificed for his children in the chance that they might have cursed God in their hearts. We see later on that, that Satan twice challenges God and says, if you will just cause Job to suffer, if you will take things away from him, uh, then he will curse you to his face. And we saw how in those circumstances that the, the word being used for curse is actually, it's a, a contextual uh, understanding of the same word that's used for bless, barak. Uh, 
But here in chapter 3, it is the word that is more commonly used in Hebrew, kalal, for, for true cursing. It's the Christmas season. Some of you may watch the movie the, A Christmas Story. And in that, the protagonist, the narrator, Ralphie, says this of his dad. He says, his father worked in profanity the way other artists might work in oils or clay. It was his true medium, a master. But Ralphie's father couldn't hold a candle to Job. Job is eloquent in his curse. And the author writes that Job cursed the day of his birth, but Job goes much further than that. He, he, Job calls on the day of his birth right, to perish, to be stripped of God's light and from before God's face for clouds, darkness, and fear to cover it. But he goes further, right? He likewise curses the night of his conception, right? that it would be removed from the calendar, the days, the months, the years, and all the shreds of joy should be removed from it that it be punished for allowing him to be conceived by even taking away the light from it, from its stars. And that's just in the first few verses. As we get into uh, verse 11, Job goes deeper into despair. It's the, the voice of despair talking here. And again, despair is a liar. Despair lies to Job. It convinces him that he would be better off dead. He cries out his wish, right, that, that he had died at birth, whether he was stillborn or dropped into the dirt, exposed, hidden, or even starved to death. Despair lies to Job. It tells him that death on his terms, even if it had been at his birth, is more desirable than life by God's design. It lies to him as its father, Satan, the father of lies again, is prone to do by mixing truth in with those lies. It says truth that death is the great equalizer, that the newborn baby is joined with the, the elder king, right? The, the wicked with the weary, the prisoners with their taskmasters, the small and the great and the slave and the free. Yet those incomplete truths conceal a lie because they claim that death is this utopian place of peace and rest, absent of trouble, when we know, and Job knows, that life apart from God's person and God's plan leads to death apart from God's purpose and plan, an eternal torment apart from that same God. The lies of despair lead Job to desire community in this false peace, in, in this, these departed people in, in death, causes them to yearn for that more than community with God in this life. And those lies lead him to reject not only God's plan, but even God's person, and that causes him to miss God's providence. As we get into verses 20 to 23, despair continues to lie to Job, telling him that he has no hope. And this despair misses God's providence, the care that God has for his creation. And the, again, this has said, this loving kindness, a steadfast love that he has for his people. And so blind to God's sovereign and power and his grace and his love and his mercy, Job cries essentially, if I 
If it must be that I was born, why can't I just die? Verses 20 to 23 are a single question. The why in verse 23 is not in the original Hebrew. And Job asks for why life and light are given to those who are, uh, who are in misery. In it, he asks not just why the miserable live, but he questions God's goodness and motives. And it climaxes at the end of verse 23 when he identifies as a man who is hedged in by God. And this imagery of being imprisoned by these, these thorns, right, with no place of escape. And we've heard the term hedged in in, in the book of Job before, but in a different light. If you'll turn back with me just one page to, to chapter 1, verse 10, Satan says this, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And this, the hedge is God's protection around Job and his house, meaning his, his family, right? And all that he has, and yet Job is seeing this hedge as a prison. The very fact that Job is still alive is proof of God's sovereignty in his care, yet despair has deceived Job to the point that he sees God's favor and protection as a curse. So deceived by despair's lies, Job finds himself longing for death on his terms. And again, though Job sins in his words, this is not incomprehensible to us at all, especially when we hear his closing complaints. But in these last complaints, I think we start to see this sliver of hope. The cry of hopelessness, I believe, in chapter 3 shows us that there is hope. So you've probably heard a cry similar to Job's before. You may have cried out in the same way yourself. I wish I had never been born. There is no hope. The world would be better off without me. I would be better off dead. I wish I would just die. Some of us may have been deceived so deeply by the lies of despair that we may have tried to do this with our own hand. We are tempted to look at Job who is stricken, in pain, in misery, crying out from the ashes and say, he has lost all hope. But as awful as Job's situation is, as deep as his suffering is, he has not yet given up hope. Complete hopelessness, total despair, would be curled up in a fetal position in the corner just waiting to die. So as awful and gut-wrenching as, as Job's cries are, like your cries are, like our cries, my cries are in times like this, I believe that those cries show a sliver of hope. Because the cry of hopelessness still has the hope that someone will hear. We cry out in anguish that someone will hear our cries, that someone will answer, that someone will help. And that is hope. So Job complains in these next three verses. He finishes his word. He summarizes his complaints with three points. I'm suffering, I'm scared, and I'm weary. As absent of, those, as, of hope as those cries seem to be, I believe that they show that Job has that sliver of hope, that he might be comforted in his suffering, encouraged in his fears, and being given rest in his troubles. 
So in verse 24, for my sighing comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. We read similar words in Psalm 42. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Some suggest that Job is not only longing for bread or lacking for bread, but that he's actually lost his appetite. And that's, that's supported by chapter 6, verse 7, and, and chapter 33, verse 20. There's an imagery of, of, of Job's groanings being poured out like water. And that reflects Paul himself writes later on that, that he is being poured out like a drink offering. Job continues. He says he's scared. He, he says, for this thing that I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. What he fears the most has come to pass. And most of us can identify with this. All of us are apt to fear loss, whether it's the fear of loss of wealth, of livelihood, and even status. And those of us who have children fear losing them. And fear for health is perhaps especially prevalent today. Job has lost all of these. His deepest fears have come to pass. And so finally, he says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job is weary and not just tired. Right? This is the beat down, the harried type of exhaustion that brings no sleep, no rest, only further suffering. The last line is a terrible conclusion that itself sums up Job's suffering. I have no rest, but trouble comes. My friends, despair is a liar. Despair lies by rejecting God's plans. It says that what God done, has done is wrong and things would be better if they were done my way. God, or despair, uh, is a liar because it rejects God's person. It says that there is something in this world that is more desirable than a relationship with God. It's more desirable than God's presence. And through these lies, despair causes us to miss God's providence, that in the midst of our deepest suffering, the truth that God sees, hears, answers, that God is near and God is working. And this providence is what Job is missing. Job doesn't know what we know. He was not a witness to these first two heavenly courts. He doesn't know how God has already demonstrated his sovereignty, his power, his mercy, his love, his, his grace before and through Job's suffering. He didn't hear God declare him blameless and upright. Job doesn't know, or Job, Job, Job doesn't know that he is God's boast. Job doesn't know what we know, that as terrible as his suffering is in chapter 3, that chapter 42 is coming. And perhaps more amazing than the way in which he will be restored in that chapter, that in the preceding four chapters, right, chapters 38 to, to 41, that, that Job will be blessed, terrified to be sure, but blessed with a face-to-face -face conversation and, and witness of the presence of God. 
And again, Job doesn't know what we know, that the arbiter, the mediator for whom he will, he will wish for, pray for in chapter 9, exists, has always existed, and will one day come as God in the flesh. Well, Job will will declare in chapter 19 that he knows that his Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand on the earth. Job doesn't know that this Redeemer will first be a baby laid in a manger. That he doesn't know that this Redeemer will share the same vulnerable flesh, share in terrible suffering, and even himself cry out in the face of despair, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there is so much going on, so much to come about which Job does not know and cannot know, is it possible, is it probable, is it even certain that as we consider our own suffering, there is so much more going on and so much more to come of which we are unaware ourselves? Praise be to God that the third chapter of Job is not the end of Job's story. Praise be to God that our cries of despair today are not the end of our story. Because again, praise be to God that we know, as Job knows, that our Redeemer lives. At the last, He will stand upon the earth And after our skin has been destroyed, yet in our own flesh, we will see God. Praise to God that even before that day, when our eyes shall see God, that the Lord is our present refuge and strength. He's a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. He has promised that He goes before us, that He hedges us in with favor and protection and that he will never leave nor forsake us. Because of this, when despair whispers or even shouts its lies, we don't need to answer. Because the answer to despair is Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer to despair's lies when we suffer from illness in this body and in our spirit is Jesus, who raises up the sick and heals us with his wounds. The answer to despair's lies when we mourn broken relationships is Jesus who promises comfort, who wipes away tears and rejoices in reconciliation. The answer to despair's lies as we lament crushed dreams is Jesus whom God, in whom God chose us before the foundation of the world that created, creating us for good works that we should walk in them. The answer to despair's lies as we agonize over finances is Jesus, who, who says, For if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The answer to despair's lies as we grieve loss is Jesus, who wept at Lazarus' tomb and who comforts us, and in whom we not only share sufferings, but God's comforts as well. And the answer to, to Jesus, or to despair's lies, as we struggle with temptation as sin, is Jesus, 
who because he himself has suffered when tempted is able to help those who are being tempted. And who says that the blood, his blood of his new covenant was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. The answer to despair's lives, uh, despair's lies when we have lost all hope, are in depths of suffering, in the fear of darkness, weary with our weeping, is Jesus. Jesus. And only Jesus. Because only he offers us true assurance and comfort and hope, not despite our sufferings, but in the very midst of them. My suffering friend, I, I don't know why you are suffering. In the next week, in weeks, you are going to hear about Job's friends as they try to explain why Job is suffering. And God will declare those answers wanting. I don't know where your suffering will lead on this earth. As the heavens are above the earth, so right, God's ways are above my ways, and God's thoughts are above my thoughts. But I do know this, that whether or not you believe God is who he says he is in these scriptures, whether you believe who Jesus is, who he says he is in these scriptures or not, God is sovereign in your suffering. And his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is your promised redeemer. So, fellow sufferer, have you taken hold of, held fast to that Redeemer who not only promises to give you comfort, purpose, and hope in your suffering, but to save you from your sins, which cling so closely that separate you from the love of God? If you've not done that, then despair not only deceives you, but it will accompany you for the rest of your life on this earth. It will accompany you to the grave and into the eternity that has been prepared for Satan, the father of deceit and the father of lies. Earlier I mentioned that Charles Spurgeon had preached one of, his few, uh, one of the few sermons I could find on Job 3, and I, I want to read his conclusion to you. But before that, as I was talking about the sermon with, with Martha, she pointed out something she read, that, that Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon never held an altar call. And we, and we don't tend to do altar calls here at this church either. Instead, he would invite people who had questions about the gospel to come meet with him the next morning. Uh, now, normally I teach a class on Monday mornings, but this week there's no homeschool co-op, so I'm not teaching. So um, I'd like to follow his example a little bit. And so uh, tomorrow from 7 to 9, if you have questions, concerns, hurts, doubts regarding the gospel, please come. I'd love to, to hear them. Uh, I might not be able to answer them. You may be able to stump me. There's probably a pretty good chance uh, on that. But I, I'd love to hear them and respond to them. And so take me up on that. And of course, take any of us up on, on that challenge. If that time doesn't work for you, we can certainly make, make another time work as well. But on to the conclusion of, of Spurgeon's sermon on, on 
Job chapter 3, verse 23. And it contains a challenge in here that I will confess I have not fully taken up. I want to take it up, but I am struggling mightily with it. Um, But hear this. Finally, Charles Spurgeon said, if I cannot tell you why all this trouble falls on your lot, I know it is right, for the Lord has done it, and blessed be his name. Aaron held his peace when his two sons died. He got as far as that in submission to the will of the Lord. But it will be better still if instead of simply holding your peace, you can bless and praise and magnify the Lord even in your sharpest trouble. Oh, may you be divinely helped to do so. Let every troubled soul march out of this place feeling, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Rise, dear friend, out of all despondency and despair, shake yourself from the dust and put on your beautiful garments of praise and joy, remembering that the path of sorrow and that path alone leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. Read that again. The path of sorrow, and that alone leads to the land where sorrow is unknown. You can see the tracks of the martyrs along the road you are journeying. Better still, you can see the footprints of the Son of God, your Lord and Savior. Therefore, you may rest assured that you are on the right road. So press bravely forward on it, and in due time you will come to that place of which Job has said, There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. And you shall, find, shall be forever without fault before the throne of God. May he grant this happy portion to you all for his dear son's sake. Amen. Please join us as we have one more song. You're able to stand with us, please. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <laughs> 